Hey, good morning. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brody Meyer, and this is WHBC Radio, where we interview unique professionals and get a great insight into their lives. This week's guest is Christopher Day, and he is the CEO of Demand Jump. Demand Jump is an AI-based customer acquisition platform, and it enables marketers to find new customers with utmost precision. It's been named TechPoint's Startup and Innovation of the Year in 2016, and was named Best New Tech Product in 2017. From very humble beginnings on a farm in Lafayette to co-founder and CEO of numerous technology companies that have led to acquisitions by Comcast, Time Warner, and Motorola, Christopher has led an incredibly successful career. And from what I can draw from our conversation, he really doesn't plan on stopping anytime soon. Christopher is definitely someone you need to fuse with at some point on the Fuse Me mobile app so that you can start to build a genuine relationship with him instead of a digital one on a social networking site. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the Man Jump CEO, Christopher Day. Hello, Christopher Day. Welcome to the show. How, How you, you doing? doing? Doing great. Happy to be here. Good. Glad uh, you agreed to do this. It'll be fun. Uh, well, anybody that gets me a large Arnie's pepperoni pizza, um, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> No problem. Now I gotta get everyone in Arnie's pizza <laughs> before the podcast. But all right, uh, start you up with a little bit of a warm up. Do three true and false questions. Okay. And I'll just give you a question, and you say true or false. Yeah. Okay. All right. Number one, chocolate chip cookies have existed longer than Oreo cookies. True. False. <laughs> Oreos were introduced in 1912. Chocolate chip cookies in 38. Wow. All right. Oh for one. Okay. <laughs> All right, next one. France was still executing people with a guillotine when the first Star Wars film came out in 1977. Well, judging on the first question, I have to say true. It's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Guillotines are still used um, until 1981. It's nuts. Maybe they should still be used. Come on. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> Take it back. Number three. <laughs> the color orange is named after the fruit. False. True. That one's nuts too. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting true and false questions. Uh, but yeah, fruit became before before the color. Interesting. Yeah. Now you're all warmed up. Yep. Ready, ready, ready to go. go. Yeah. Ready, ready to jump into your life. All right. Okay. So, number one, we're gonna start off with right when you you know grown up. You grew up right right outside of Lafayette as the youngest of five children. You and your siblings didn't have much and had to work on the farm to help the family get by. What was it like growing up on the farm? Uh, it was secluded, hot, dirty, dusty, um, lonely. Um, but that's the those are the cons. Uh, I'd say the pros are we, we learned work ethic, uh, bonded. The siblings bonded, played lots of basketball, uh, but learned work ethic and how to think three steps ahead. Did you have anybody close nearby, any friends, or was it just, you know, the family? It was mostly the family. We, um, we were our neighbors, we had a couple of neighbors that were close. It was a country road, so several tenths of a mile away, but probably the closest friend, you know, a few miles away, so it wasn't like it was in a neighborhood or any of that nature. My dad believed in work, not play. Gotcha. And you still, you bring that in uh, every day, today still, huh? Yep. You told me, you, you know, you didn't eat all day, you just worked. Yep. <laughs> it's a problem. I should start eating. <laughs> so in order to pay for college, you and your older brother started a house painting company yep. um, in the suburbs of Chicago. 
Besides being driven by making money for college tuition, what led you and your brother down this path to painting houses? So my older brother, uh, so he'd gone to IU, he graduated, moved to Chicago, and he went into um, public accounting. And, uh, and he knew that I always wanted to own my own company from a very young age. I probably knew that at, at like 10, 11, 12 years old that I wanted to own my own company. And so, I don't know, I guess I've never asked him that question. It's a good question. Um, all I know is that he called me once out of the blue and said, hey, I know you want to start, your, you want to own your own company someday. And we all had to figure out how we were going to pay for college. And, uh, and so he said, my roommate used to own this painting company in Indianapolis, and you should start a painting company. We'll be your two partners. We'll, we'll find the $10,000 to go buy the ladders in the van. We'll put you in business and come up to Chicago, and you can live on a cot in our living room and um, start a painting company. And so, I don't know, sounded like a good idea to me. So <laughs> but we did it. Um, and uh, I did just that. I lived on a cot in their living room during the summers. And, and uh, um, I think I just always wanted, uh, I always had an issue with authority growing up, probably because of the way my dad raised us. I had a little issue with authority. Um, I kind of wanted to be my own, my own man or my own person. Um, and wanted to prove that you know I could do something that was interesting and valuable. I think probably. Um, you know, at the time it was more to make money to get through college, but uh, I just always believe in like meritocracy and stuff. So I don't know, it's just inner drive. I think the way I was raised that, that I wanted to have my own company. Yeah, so that drive got you to make enough money to go off to college. And in '88, you went to Purdue University, studied construction management. Yep. Was this always what you wanted to study? Oh yeah, absolutely. I knew exactly what I was going to do. When I was 15 years old, I was going to grow up and I was going to become a general contractor. I was going to own my own general contracting company. And uh, that's exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I knew it for a fact, 100% when I was 15 years old. Never happened, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that's what I knew when I was 15. That's what I planned to do. Yeah. So in, in 1992, um, you, you became a product manager in yep. Atlanta? Yep. Bovis? Yep. For Bovis? Yep. Um, you worked on hospitals and jobs related to the 96 Olympic Games. Yep. Seemed like you were very committed to construction, and you, like you said, you know, you want to do this your whole life. Yep. What made you transition to tech? So, um, so kind of the three steps the way it happened was, um, so building these cool facilities, like you said, airports and malls and stadiums and all that kind of fun stuff. Worked for a huge outfit called Bovis. I think at the time they were number five in the world, uh, construction management company. And um, I got pulled into this team that they called the A-Team. There were probably like, I don't know, half a dozen of us on this thing this, that they called the A-Team. And we would go into all the problem projects and that were you know behind schedule, over budget. And we would go into a war room and we would be told by the principal in charge, uh, this is how much money you can spend. You know, Don't piss this person off. Um, this person we don't care about. Do whatever you want. Right? Like, Here's the marching order. Go get the job done. Yeah. And during that, when I joined that team, um, I got exposed to what the net margin was in that business, and it was 0.7%, 0.7% net profit. And so what I realized what the, was um, that the general contractors kind of get caught in the middle, right? So the money's made by the developers and the brokers and all these kinds of people, and then, and then you have the GC that's supposed to build this, this thing, and then you have all these subcontractors, and so this GC's kind of caught in the middle. Uh, they just got to figure it out, right? They, yeah. they get beat on the head for budget and cost and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I realized, gosh, I don't want to be a general contractor. Um, and so I moved back to Indianapolis and uh, went to work for a developer. 
and then I kind of realized how the whole world worked, right? How a, how a piece of dirt, you know, becomes some kind of a, you know, structure. Uh, and so then I knew I wanted to be a developer. I really wanted to be a commercial developer. Um, and, uh, and so one of the guys I had that painting company with, my brother's friend, uh, called me up and said, hey, I heard you're back in town. And I've got this other business idea. He'd go on to do estate planning for kind of your millionaire next door concept people. Like people who own mobile home parks or whatever, right? You had these clients that were multi-millionaires in these kind of obscure businesses. And, uh, but he was trying this business out. It had to do with cable and internet stuff. Um, and he said, I think there's something here, but not quite making it work. You want to come and give this, give this a try? So literally, the way I got into tech was I started a broadband company, um, cable, internet, telephony, uh, with the pure reason to go try to make some money to become a commercial developer. <laughs> and I just never got back. All right, and you stuck with it ever since? Stuck with it ever since. I did get my fix. I did have a commercial development company for a little while. Okay. Um, with, a, with a friend of mine, um, and we probably did like four commercial developments, but, but technology has been the thread ever since uh, 97, 1997. So that, uh, that's with Starcom Broadband? Starcom Broadband. And it sold to Comcast yep. soon after you yep. started it. What was the most difficult challenge you faced in that first tech startup, <coughs> not having much experience in the tech world? Um, the most difficult challenge, that's yeah. a hard one because, um, there were like probably roughly a thousand challenges. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'd say one in that business model, um, one tough thing was it was a very capital intensive business. Um, so we had to raise a lot of money to, uh, go build these systems. We had to, we had to front the capital to build these systems and then get payback by signing up, you know, subscribers one and two at a time. Um, we also were competing with the big telcos, right? So the AT&Ts, the Comcast, Time Warners, um, DirecTV, Dish Network. Um, so we were, we were competing with these large entrenched players. Um, with So we had a capital-intensive business competing with large entrenched players, and, um, and they, had a, they had a big pocketbook, and so they, were, they would pay these apartment owners, multifamily housing owners, what they call door fees. To keep people like us out, and so you'd write a check of you know fifty bucks, hundred bucks a door, which is a lot of money when you start mm-hmm. adding it up, and uh, so they would stroke you know fifty, hundred thousand dollar checks to people for a five, six, seven year, ten year exclusive contract that was hard for us to compete with because we couldn't stroke those kind of checks at the yeah. time. We had to compete on like just good basic service. We're not going to string cables up across your building or across your sidewalks. Your tenant, you know, trips on that cable and sues you for a million dollars. You know, that, our, that was our pitch was. We're going to do a better job of service. We had a technology we used that we could turn on and turn off your cable from our office. So we were doing that. and We could turn on and turn off people's cable from our office in three states, um, which is a big differentiator because if somebody didn't write the rent check, we'd get a phone call, shut off their cable, <laughs> flip a switch, rent check would show up two hours later. So we would, that's the way we kind of competed with those, those differentiators. Um, and then we figured out how to tariff dark fiber. This is back in the days when overbuilders were a big deal. I think there was a group called RCN out of Boston that raised like, I can't remember, like $400 million to go do a bunch of overbuilding, uh, literally run cable lines right next to the Comcast or the Time Warners of the world and try to go compete at the household passing level, which that model never made sense to us. Um, But we figured out how to tariff dark fiber and piggyback off of Ameritech uh, so we could turn RF signal into light and run it over fiber and then back into RF at another property. Um, And we figured out how to do that in Arbor, Michigan. And that's why wow. Comcast bought us. So it's something they couldn't do, and they were, they were in. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, they didn't like that, and they had just bought the rights to that market and realize and, and didn't realize till they showed up to town to welcome all the MediaCom people to the Comcast family. We love you. Put their arms around them. 
Um, and they rolled into town and saw our trucks along with Ameritech lacing up all this technology. Um, and literally, uh, when they saw that from phone call to buying us, it was 10 days. Wow. Right after that sale to Comcast, you jumped into the next venture. Yep. It's the co-founder and CEO of Viastar Energy. Yep. It was an automated reading company, meter yep. reading company. Yep. Um, then you, you ended up selling the NWP services in yep. 2008. Yep. As an experienced entrepreneur at this point, um, how did you approach that venture differently than the year one that you sold to Comcast? Yep. So the um, so so after we hit so I had the same partner in, in Starcom Broadband and Viastar Energy. So literally, so after we sold that, we had a six month contract with with Comcast, kind of a transition process. And literally, my my old partner and I were sitting in the conference room. We didn't know what we were going to do next. Had no idea. And literally, as we were sitting there, got a phone call from one of our old customers, and he said, "Guys, um, I got some utility problems. I need you to help me with." And so, well, we had just done broadband, right? Yeah. So, I mean, way too sexy. Could not possibly be bothered with utilities, <laughs> right? And broadband was very sexy. Utilities, not sexy. And um, and so, but we agreed after some coaxing, we agreed to go meet him in his office. And long story short, we started looking into this business model, and we're like, oh my gosh, this utility business model is much better than the broadband model we just came out of, because people would pay for the infrastructure we would deploy. So basically, we ended up building uh, an automated metering solution. So we built a piece of hardware that we end up uh, selling to Motorola, and then we built a billing software um, that we end up selling to uh, National Water and Power out okay. of California. Um, and so, it uh, literally we. You know, I didn't know anything about broadband or cable when we started that company. We went and found, you know, smart engineers from Comcast, Time Warners of the world to go build these systems. Um, hell, I didn't know anything about utilities either, right? But we went and, and uh, partnered up with a friend of mine who owned a, a, a very large um, plumbing company, in, and he works in multi multiple states, um, and partnered up with him to get the expertise on how to go deploy these systems. And, um, and we partnered up with Motorola to build that, that hardware, and, uh, and it all worked out. So after that sale in 2009, you co-founded an investment banking firm with your brother yep. called Navidar Group. Yep. Um, and these, the principals of Navidar Group have completed more than 300 transactions, representing volume of nearly $70 billion yep. in M&A and capital raise. Did you and your brother ever envision this possibility when you're you know, painting houses in Chicago and growing up on the farm? You know, this, this sort of uh, uh, circle around working but working together again and so that's a, that that's a great question I will I guess uh, you give me all these questions I should ask my brother okay. um, but uh, that's a great question I, so I don't know what he, he really thought about I know that he um, had dreams of going on go, going to Wall Street mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure if he knew back you know when he was a teenager in college I'm not sure if he realized he wanted to be an investment banker or mm-hmm. not um, I think he definitely realized that in like his mid-20s and he indeed went and did that, right? He uh, he went to Wall Street and was an investment banker and worked for some of the world's best uh, banks in the world. So Goldman Sachs and um, DLJ before that, and I'm forgetting, I think, one other. But had a great run on Wall Street. Um, from my perspective, um, yeah, I'd like to be president of the United States someday if I had my preference. Uh, yeah. I definitely dream big. A lot of days with a three-bottom plow in the middle of the night, plowing fields. Uh, yeah, I feel like I haven't started yet. I'm 47. You know, I love that. Not even That's time. awesome. So uh, I'm just getting started. I've just been warming up the yeah. last 25 years. Um, so yeah, I don't know where it's, the future is going to take me, but uh, gosh, I, I feel like all the experiences and the failures I've had over the last 25 years have prepared me for an awesome next 25 years. 
So, yeah, lofty dreams. Um, you know, when that opportunity came to start that investment banking firm with Stephen and Tim, um, yeah, I wanted to jump at it, right? Learn something new. I learned yeah. a lot over those five years. They still are running with Navidar today. Uh, I came back to the tech side, recurring revenue and, uh, you know, forward-looking multiples, all that kind of fun stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he had some big dreams too. Yeah. And he accomplished them, right? He was on Wall Street for probably 15, 20 years. It's incredible. So, fun, fun ride. So during that time with Navidar, you, um, you're named IVJ's 40 Under 40, sat on TechPoint Board of Directors, became chairman at Pet Bookings Incorporated, and even invested in the Sky Zone Trampoline Park. It sounds like you were definitely itching back, itching to get back into that startup world, you know, like yeah. you said. And um, in 2015, you got back into it as the CEO of Demand Jump. Yep. This is one, this company we're sitting in the offices right now, uh, just countless awards, including Startup of the Year in 2016, Best New Tech Product in 2017. How is your experience different in this um, current tech environment than it was when you started your first companies? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a, there's some massive differences. Um, number one, the Indianapolis and the Indiana ecosystem as a whole to support tech companies is night and day. From 97 to 2017, it is literally night and day. Um, uh, people didn't know what the hell tech was back in 97, and now today we celebrate it, right? Like, yeah. like tech are the new rock stars of, you know, uh, uh, yeah. you know of old, right? So um, number one is the ecosystem is 180 degrees different. Um, and that comes because we've had other tech success stories. Um, talent. So we understand how to recruit for talent better uh, with tech companies here um, today. Uh, I think, you know, I've, I've become much more wise. Not that I am wise. I've become more wise. I'm still not as, as wise as I want to be. I still have a lot to learn. Um, but I've been burned enough uh, along the way with, you know, this is my eighth company, I think it is. And... Uh, you know, in eight different verticals, starting with the painting company, right? Um, and I've had a lot of failures, and so I've learned from those failures, and I still make mistakes today. Um, hopefully, they, they won't be, you know, as catastrophic, but you know, we still make various mistakes today. But what, one thing I've, I've gotten a lot better at, and I've always had this belief ever since day one, is uh, I, I constantly look for people to surround myself with that are smarter than, than I am. Full stop. And if I do that, right, then we, then it's almost, it's really hard to lose. Yeah, you're right? cooking. So, yeah. so I think that the big differences would be the ecosystem, um, you know, access to capital has gotten better, the talent pool for tech companies is a lot better, and um, just by having been burned or having made mistakes, I'm, I'm, I think I'm better at picking the right people to get on the team to do various functions that it takes to try and win. It's very evident as, you know, you guys are doing incredible things over here. Certainly trying. Certainly trying. Last week, uh, Governor Holcomb signed a bill that allows technology companies that sell software as a service, known as SaaS, to no longer collect sales taxes. You're very much a legislative leader and a large proponent in making this happen. Um, Actually, Governor Holcomb signed the bill right in Demand Jump headquarters. It's a very exciting time in Indiana. Can you explain to our listeners what it really means for Indiana and the tech community? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, so what we've talked about with the administration and with the legislators is um, this whole issue wasn't really about SaaS sales tax. It's about something much bigger than that. Um, 
And so what I mean by that is that the, you know, they did a study and I think there's roughly $10 million in revenue receipts uh, over the last 12 months from SaaS uh, sales tax. Um, the bigger question, uh, and this is where the, the governor, Holcomb, is brilliant uh, in recognizing this, and in his administration as well, and the legislators, the, whole, the, yeah. the entire group. This is why we have the um, number one regulatory environment in the country, is, is for this specific example. Um, so what this is really about is how do we, two main things. Number one is how do we raise the average wage of the Indiana citizen to be that above the national average? So I think right now the, the rough uh, Indiana average wage is like 43000 and the national average wage is roughly 45000 46000 So how do we get that to be above the forty-five, forty-six $46,000 number? Uh, the two best paths to get there are through tech jobs and through life sciences jobs. Uh, those, the jobs in those two industries outperform by roughly 2x the, the average wage. Um, now, advanced manufacturing is still very strong, right? But, it's, but I don't even know if it's at the national average. It might be a tick below. So, so how do we raise the average wage of the Indiana citizen to be that above the national average? It's through tech and life sciences. Number two is how do we maximize or increase revenue for the state? Uh, and the way we do that is we create more jobs, more jobs, more jobs. And so, you know, when we went off the gold standard in the 70s, we became a consumer-driven economy. So what we need are people out there who are making a great wage and are going out and buying cars. They're buying homes. They're buying clothing. They're sending their kids to schools. They're buying Arnie's pizza, Arnie's Coke, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're buying goods, and those goods are taxed at 7% sales tax. What we want is to make it as efficient as possible for the technology companies to infuse technology into hard goods so we make better hard goods than anybody in the world and we sell more of those hard goods to everybody in the world and those things get taxed, hard goods get taxed. That's how we propel Indiana. That's how we become the nation's nucleus and I'm, I'm, I'm so passionate about this issue. Um, I can tell. I saw that um, the post you had yeah. a couple of days ago. I think on the yeah. nation's nucleus. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm extremely awesome. passionate yeah. about it, and it's, it's yeah. a, it's so much fun to to be part of a community. And I say community. I'm talking about Indianapolis, the outer skirts, and all the way to Fort Wayne and down to Evansville, right? The entire state of Indiana. Um, everybody is is hardworking, humble, you know, passionate, compassionate, um, and, and you look at working with the administration that we have in place with Governor Holcomb's leadership. Um, it's, it's just an awesome where everybody just wants to make it better. And when you have the public sector and the private sector working together to make it as efficient as possible to, to grow jobs in industries that are, have high growth, um, how can we not be successful, right? Exactly. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been excellent. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. My name's Brody Meyer, and this was WHBC Radio, brought to you by the FuseMe mobile application. For those of you who do not know, WHBC stands for We Hate Business Cards. Please check out our mobile app on the app store called FuseMe. FuseMe is a business tool eliminating the business card while bringing back the human-to-human connection that we find ourselves missing in this era of social media. Thanks again for tuning in. Keep your eyes peeled for more podcasts, and remember... We hate business cards.